We've been studying the book of Acts now, getting a understanding of the first church that Jesus had founded here on this earth. The church that exists still to this day. The book of Acts is an open book. The Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the, the church that are still being completed today. If the book of Acts was to continue on, it, it would include those acts that are still being performed and, and completed by the, the church. But now more than ever, the church needs to be in tune with what the Spirit is leading and guiding us in. Now more than ever, the church needs the power of the Holy Spirit as we are facing persecution, as we are facing trials. And with all of this, we need to submit to the work that God is laying before us. And sometimes that submission, it, it's hard. Sometimes we are so stubborn as to allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us into that work that he desires for our lives. But as we study the acts of the apostles, as we study the works of Christ, we can see how when we submit that God is shown powerful. When we left off in the book of Acts, we were studying of Peter preaching this gospel of grace to a, a, a Gentile nation, to a people who were not Jews, who had not known of the grace of God, but they were selected and chosen by God nonetheless. You see, before Christ came, there was a huge divide between Jews and Gentiles. We have to keep in mind uh, uh, of the power of what Christ's death and resurrection was to the church and to the believers. You see, before Christ came, no one was able to enter into heaven. It's like, wait, what? Maybe we didn't know that. Maybe we did. But before Christ came, no one was able to enter into the throne room of God or into heaven. All the saints, they would enter into a place called Abraham's bosom. If you look at Luke chapter 16, not right now, but on your, in your study time, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 16 tells us about the rich man and Lazarus who were separated by this, this gulf, this space in eternity. You see, the rich man and Lazarus were two men who lived here on this earth that Jesus talks about. It's not a parable. It's an actual account where Jesus refers to the rich man and Lazarus that they both died. And the rich man ended up going to hell and to the place of torment. But Lazarus, the beggar, he went into what was known as Abraham's bosom, this place of comfort this place of rest where all the saints would go to. And Abraham himself was there. 
And the rich man in the flames cried out to Abraham and said, Abraham, find Lazarus. And if he, Lazarus can just dip that water on my tongue to quench the fire that I'm feeling. And Abraham explained to the rich man, no, there's a gulf separating us. We, we can't cross to the other side. But they could see each other and they were separated. And this is all referring to Abraham's bosom, this place where the saints would go and wait for the arrival of the Messiah, for someone to come and break the captives free out of this prison. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He went into, the, into hell for three days and three nights and proclaimed the captives free. And then when he resurrected, everybody came up with him into heaven. And believers, from then on now, when we die, we enter into eternity, into heaven with Jesus, with God himself, where there's no more waiting places, no purgatory, just right into the presence of God. The Bible teaches us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It says in my notes that the Holy Spirit was then sent to the Jews in Jerusalem. From this point on, once Jesus overcame death, overcame the grave, God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus desired that the Holy Spirit would be sent upon the church in Jerusalem there. That the Holy Spirit would then begin to guide believers naturally, supernaturally in our lives so that we can be led where no longer are we separated from God through a mediator, through a priest, but we have direct access by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ to God. And it was at this time that the Gentiles on a large scale began to, to follow after God slowly but surely. And then Peter, he is sent, if you guys remember last week, we talked about him being sent to the house of a Roman centurion by the Holy Spirit. And that was where we left off where everything, the church is, is growing now. The, the main antagonist of the church at the time, Saul, was converted on the road to Damascus and joining now the, the disciples. And then it began to follow the account of Peter and what he was going through there in this vision that he has. So we start now, leaving off from last week now in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, the devout Jews, those religious leaders, they heard of what Peter had done. And they were raised in the law. They were raised under 
the Old Testament under the, the, the instructions that they were not allowed to have these covenants, these relationships with people who were Gentiles. According to the Old Testament, you were not allowed to enter into a covenant with the Gentile if you were a Jew. You were not to have a familiar conversation with them. It was prohibited that they would eat and drink any sort of, uh, of drinks and food in their houses. And they weren't even allowed to walk down the street with them. Now, this is, again, I remind you guys, this is all Old Testament. So, if we find it in the Old Testament, these, these laws, how come we don't follow it today? There's a lot of uh, laws in the Old Testament that we still don't follow to this day. So then how do we know if we're supposed to follow which rules, rules we're supposed, supposed to follow and which ones we're not? You know, there, there's laws in the Old Testament about not eating lobster, which I love lobster. Get some butter on that thing. There's also laws in the Old Testament about not wearing mixed articles of clothing, meaning different fabrics. And we don't follow that either as Christians. So how do we know which laws we're supposed to follow and which ones we're not? Well, as Christians, as believers, we follow the New Testament teachings of Jesus and his apostles. And we get these doctrines of, of Jesus and the apostles directly from Jesus' teaching, from his practices, and also from the early church practices. So when it comes to doctrine, we, we have that threefold test of did Jesus teach it? Did he practice it? And did the early church practice it? Do we see that as an example? Now, these are not laws, spiritual laws, that are ceremonial laws from the Old Testament, but they're called moral laws. You see, there's the ceremonial laws were basically done away with once the Holy Spirit came to us. But the moral laws, they still are followed by. They're still taught on by, by Jesus and his apostles. So many times you might hear an argument referring to the fact that, oh, well, the Old Testament has this and this. How come you guys don't do that anymore? But you, you guys harp on other moral sins. And you can explain to a person, well, we follow the, the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. When Jesus came, he did away with the ceremonial laws because we don't have to work in a works relationship towards God. But now it's about a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus does not want us to commit these moral sins. So the people who were coming against Peter at this time, they were raised in following these ceremonies and these laws from the Old Testament. And now that they're hearing this new doctrine where Peter was going into a Gentile's house and praying with them and eating with them, these Jews were finding this hard to believe. It says this, but in verse 4, but Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying, 
and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now remember, Peter is he's rehearsing of what we read about last week. And he, he's telling the Jews that, look, I had a vision. And one thing I noticed is that God actually can give people visions and, and trances. It is possible. I myself have never had a, a vision or a trance like that. Um, so I admire Peter's gift of experiencing this. Um, but that's got to be something quite awesome to, to experience. And he, in this vision that he saw, it was something like a great sheet with all types of these unkosher animals, ceremonially unclean creatures, bacon and In-N-Out burgers were coming down on the sheet. And as he saw this in this vision, God was telling Peter to rise, to kill and eat, to go against what the Old Testament law and ceremonies had taught him already. God was telling Peter through this that the Old Testament ceremonial laws have been abolished. And now a new dispensation exists. That word dispensation, it's a spiritual dispensation would be a system of order, a government or an organization, a community existing at a particular time. So we live in this dispensation of grace. And as God is referring this to Peter, Peter says, not so, Lord. I'm not going to eat that thing that all my life I've been taught not to eat. And by doing so, he's commonly known as foot and mouth syndrome. He's always saying, not so, Lord. But if God is his Lord, how could he say no? And God reminds him, don't call what God has cleaned unholy so we need to as believers be careful that we don't call what god has clean unholy you know we come across different types of christians with different doctrines in our life but they're still believers still followers and maybe certain of them have different liberties than us maybe you you come across a, a believer who loves tattoos and gets tattoos all over himself and has that freedom to do so. It's not for us to say, oh, that's unholy, that's, that's unclean. It's for us to say, hey, that's, you know, that's your liberty. And if God gives you a conviction a about a particular topic, make sure that you don't go against that. Don't stumble yourself and also try not to stumble your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Like don't, or not try not to, just don't do it. 
And uh, as Peter is saying, okay, like he's understanding now that God is calling him to the Gentiles to be able to eat with them, to preach to them. We read in verse 10, it says, Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. So notice he has the vision three times, and then as soon as the vision's over, he looks and there's three men, three Gentiles. It's like, whoa, okay, this is kind of weird. And then in verse 12, Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. I love how God, again, I said this last week and I see it again here, that God was working on both sides. He was speaking to Peter there in Joppa. And then he was also speaking to the centurion in in, in Caesarea. And God was telling both of them about what they were going to encounter. And as the men were drawn together, they saw that God brought this unity amongst them. And things were lining up. In verse 15, it says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. You see, Peter recognized that this is occurring to the Gentiles just as it did to the Jews on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit moved upon the believers in Jerusalem. And Peter explained to them, how was I going to do stop the Holy Spirit's work? When you see that work of the Holy Spirit, jump in it. Just jump in line with what God is doing. Don't fight it and strive against it. I'm reminded of how hard Jesus had to explain to the disciples at times about this new work that God and the Holy Spirit was doing. Jesus, in explaining to the disciples of John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 9, he explained to them this illustration. He told John's disciples, he said, look, people don't put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskin will break and the wine will be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. When Jesus is explaining this, what he's saying is new wine 
is an illustration of the Holy Spirit of God himself pouring his grace and love. And the old wineskin, this would have been an illustration of those people who were stuck in the old wrong way of attempting to reach God through works and self-righteousness. So that was the old wineskin of the the old ways, people who were hard-hearted and stuck on self-righteousness. But a new wineskin would have been an illustration of a sinner who was called by Christ and by the grace and love of the Holy Spirit. You see, this new wine, this new work of the Spirit needed to be received by those who were going to be made new, not by those who were stuck in the old ways of a workspace relationship. And this is exactly what Peter was seeing done to these Gentiles. And he explained it to the Jews there in Jerusalem. And I love that they began to realize, okay, God is moving. They accepted it. It says in verse 19, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, as we're following this portion of Scripture, we are going to leave Peter and the account that he's uh, doing here in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts then takes a turn and then begins to focus on Saul, who becomes Paul. And the Bible then begins to focus on his work and on what the Holy Spirit was doing in his life. And as we just read in verses 19 through 21, there's this missions trips that began to take place. That they're following after what Jesus told them to do was to first spread the gospel there in Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, and then the outermost parts of the world. And so they began to go up the coast of this Mediterranean Sea. And they began to visit the island of Cyprus and Antioch and Phoenicia, all all these places nearby. And as they began to preach, they they preached to the Hellenists. If you guys remember who the Hellenists were, Hellenists were Jews who spoke Greek. They were raised in Greek culture. And they preached to them. And we're seeing now these conversions take place. Now, in verse 19, it it did mention that those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. So, Satan himself, the devil, put it in the hearts of the religious leaders at the time to go against Stephen, to attack him and to stone him to death and then to begin to persecute the early church. 
And as Satan tried to destroy the early church, all the Christians, they spread out all over that area, all over the world in that area. And God in his sovereignty and in his power, he used this so that the church can spread the gospel. So it's like Satan tries to at times punch us right in the face as believers and the Lord just moves us out of the way and Satan's move, his own, his own move makes him fall on the floor and eat the dust and the gospel spreads and we see this happen in our lives. So now as the gospel is spreading in verse 22, it says, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with the purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Again, here we see Barnabas being that encourager of the brethren. He's noted as a man who is good, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Qualities in which we should ask that God would fill us with. His goodness, his spirit, with faith. It says in verse 25, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Now, the last time we were reading about Saul, he was preaching to the Hellenists in Antioch. And then those in Antioch, even including the Hellenists, became upset at Saul and his teaching, and they desired to kill him. So the disciples said, hey, you got to leave. You have to go. And they sent Saul back to Tarsus, which was his hometown. And Saul was there in Tarsus, and now finally Barnabas is coming to him. It says in verse 26, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Imagine back then they would have had to ask people like, Hey, do you guys know where where Saul lives? They didn't have cell phones or Google Maps to find people. They would have had to ask by name and just go door to door. Hey, do you know where the man Saul of Tarsus lives? And the Lord led him to him. So Barnabas finds him and says, so it was, again in verse 26, so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So Barnabas, he brings back Saul right back to where they try to kill him. He's like, all right, Saul, we're going to go back. And this is where they first began to call the believers Christians. Now, it's quite uncertain, this term Christians, where where in Antioch it, it came from. There are some historians who say that it was actually a derogatory term at first. That people meant it in a, in a mean way of like all oh, these like little, little Christs. They're little followers of Jesus. And they saw it, though, as like a, as Jesus, as something that was foolish. And so they called those who followed after Christ Christians. But 
the believers, the Christians, they adopted this name. They said, you know what? We are Christians. It's exactly what we are. And thus, the term Christianity was birthed right here. Before that, there were no Christians. Isn't that crazy? A lot of times people think, oh, Jesus was Christian. No, Jesus was Jewish. But what he changed about the Jewish religion was he founded the Christian religion. And all Jesus' followers, because they were different from the Jews, then began to call themselves Christians. And that's what we follow. In verse 27, it says, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So are there prophets? I, I see here in the New Testament, in these early days, yeah, there were prophets. I'm always leery nowadays of when somebody calls themselves a prophet. I've kind of a red flag goes up in my, my mind. But the Bible teaches that this person actually prophesied of, of a famine that was going to take place. Now, for uh, us Bible students and those who uh, desire to see more apologetics and truth, what I love about verse 28 is it mentions that there was a great famine that happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, there's a lot of historians who actually talk about this famine that it's referring to right here. And we have another portion of scripture which, which is backed up by secular history. See, our Bible, because of its truth, we can find all types of, of secular history that also supports that the Bible is true. The 4th century historian Orosius mentions this famine, the same famine which also took place there in Syria. And it occurred in 46 and 47 AD. In his writings, they were translated to be known as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And what he writes, I'm going to read some of his notations uh, of a historian it says in AD 46, in this year, Claudius, the second Roman emperor to invade Britain, put much of the island under his control and added the Orkneys to Rome's kingdom. This took place in the fourth year of his rule. In the same year, a great famine in Syria took place, which Luke mentions in his book, The Acts of the Apostles. Due to his incompetence, the emperor, Claudius Nero, almost lost control of the British Isle. So it's kind of cool how he's writing about what is happening in the Roman government and about these leaders. But as he's saying that, he's writing about the Acts of the Apostles, Luke mentioning it, because Luke wrote the book of Acts. So we have a secular historian who's telling us that Luke, 
wrote the book of Acts and about the Great Famine. He also wrote in A.D. 47, in this year, the evangelist Mark began to write his gospel in Egypt. How interesting. And again, in A.D. 47, during the fourth year of his rule, there was a great famine in Syria, which Luke mentions in his book, The Acts of the Apostles. So you see, our Bible, it's backed up by history. And it's something that's trustworthy, that's proven. So this famine that was taking place there in the time of Saul, it says in verse 29, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So here we see, again, this practice of of tithing, of offering, shown in the New Testament. Now, we're going to jump into chapter 12. See how far we can get with this. It says in verse 1, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So here we're reading about this persecution that is growing to this early church. And Herod, a Jew himself, was attacking the church. Now James, one of the the disciples, a brother of John, the disciple. You guys remember those who were close to Jesus during his earthly ministry? It was Peter, James, and John. They were, they were Jesus' closest disciples. He would always call them separately. He'd say, hey, uh, I want you three to come with me. They wouldn't go to the Mount of Transfiguration. And James and John, they were brothers. And Jesus even called them the sons of thunder. James and John had this uh, a close relationship with Peter and with Jesus also. And it says here that Herod in order that he would persecute the church, that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. According to tradition and history, he was beheaded. And James was no doubt spreading the news that God had received the Gentiles there in Jerusalem. And this would have upset the religious leaders. This would have upset the, the zealots. And so... Because of this, Herod knew if I, if I strike James, those religious Jews, they're going to like me and the rest of the Jewish people. So that's exactly what he did. And I know this had to have been one of the, the greatest heartbreaks for, for Peter. And it is hard to understand 
at times. Why God would allow such a thing to happen to James, and yet Peter was spared. Peter is put in prison, but God saw it fit to allow James to be beheaded. I don't understand maybe what Peter would have been thinking of why he would have been allowed to live and his good friend dying as Peter was there in prison. I'm wondering if he was reminded of what God said to the prophet Isaiah. When God told Isaiah, he said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, we cannot always understand what God is doing and why he does things. So we have to trust that God is good, that he's faithful, that he is loving, that his plans for us are better than our own. Now as Peter is there in prison, it says in verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Silence, Chihuahua. <laughs> in Jesus' name. <laughs> Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Now, we don't know sometimes what our prayers are doing or how powerful they are. It says that constant prayer was offered to God for him. So this is like a, a just... A, praying and fasting for Peter as he's there in prison. Sometimes we grow weary in our prayers. Sometimes we begin to think, oh, I, I don't know if um, our prayers are having effect. I'm reminded of Daniel, who was praying and fasting by the Tigris River. For three weeks, he prayed and fasted that's a long time to be praying and fasting. And then finally, at the end of three weeks, the angel Gabriel appeared to Daniel. And the angel explained to Daniel that as soon as Daniel had started praying, God sent the angel to deliver a message to Daniel. But that there is demonic warfare that came across this angel's path, that another, a demon had attacked him as he was there to send this message and had prohibited this angel from carrying this message to Daniel. So then Michael, the archangel, had to go and then fight with this demon so that the angel, Gabriel, can finally go and give his message to Daniel. And Daniel, I'm sure he's just praying there like, man, I've been praying and fasting and I'm trying to understand the word of the Lord, what God is trying to say. And then finally he has that breakthrough prayer where that angel delivers that message to him. And the message was a prophecy concerning the Messiah, the anointed one. I wonder what, would have happened if Daniel would have given up in his prayers too soon. 
And it reminds me that when God leads us to pray, that we are not to give up in our prayers, that we are to be constant with them. In verse 6, it says, And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. And the guards before the door were keeping the prison. You see, these guards had to take careful care of Peter to not let him escape. Because if they were to allow him to escape, then they would receive the punishment that was intended for their prisoner. Which for Peter, it was going to be death. In verse 7, it says, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter experiences a miracle here as he's there waiting in the jail, probably hopeless. Suddenly this angel appears on the side of Peter and strikes him to wake him up. And all of a sudden, the the doors of the prison start to open, and Peter is walking out now with this angel. And it was a surreal experience for Peter, so much so that he didn't even think it was really happening. As this angel is leading Peter out of the prison, he's like, what's going on? Like, this is a vision, this is a dream. And then suddenly, in verse 10, it says, when they were past the first and the second guard posts, They came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord had sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So Peter now realizes like, wait a second, this is actually happening. It's not too good to be true. It's the reality. You see, our God is a God of miracles. The prayers that those disciples were praying for Peter were answered. That an angel just went and opened the doors for him. And it's interesting how God, because he wasn't done with Peter, Peter still had a mission to fulfill, allowed Peter to escape. James, who was beheaded, his mission was complete. As a vessel of Christ, as a vessel of the Holy Spirit, he had fulfilled his race. So God took him home. But Peter, who was not done yet, He was allowed to be free from the prison. 
It says in verse 12, So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. So imagine Peter, he just is released by an angel out of prison. He goes to his his friend's house, the disciples, and they're all there praying all night, constant prayer for Peter that God would protect him, that God would save him from death and destruction. And Peter knocks on the door and little Rhoda comes up and she's like, who's there? And he's like, it's Peter. And she's just like, and she recognizes his voice so much so that she doesn't even open the door, but she's just like, and leaves and goes to the disciples. And she's like, it's Peter. And then it says in verse 15, but they said to her, you are beside yourself. You're crazy. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. So they're thinking, look, it's, it's just a, the ghost of Peter. Perhaps he, he died now at this point. And then in verse 16, now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Wow. I'm sure at, at this point they, they had to realize, like, man, we, we were there praying all night for that one thing. And when that one thing finally came, they didn't even believe it was really happening. They're like, it's not Peter. There's no way. It's his ghost. Sometimes uh, I, I hear Jesus' words, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt that I was going to answer that prayer that you've been praying for? I remember uh, there was a, a season in my life when I was working at Calvary Chapel, Golden Springs, and when I had decided that I wanted to go back to air conditioning so that I could start this church, so I could start a ministry, I would begin to pray and ask that the Lord would provide a job for me, an HVAC job. And so I began to pray and I made a resume and I, I sent my resume out and I wasn't getting any response, zero response. And it, it was a few months of, of sending my resume and making some phone calls and I, I wasn't getting any progress. And I became disheartened and I, I began to think, maybe God, you're, I'm hearing you wrong. Maybe you're not calling me to leave. And at this moment, uh, of just kind of finally feeling so doubtful. I, I got a phone call suddenly from from a, a past coworker of mine, and they offered me a job. And I was like, whoa. And I was like, okay, well, let me, um, let me think about it. And then I remember just this complete feeling of, wow, God, I'm, 
I'm so sorry I doubted you. I'm sorry I, I doubted that you could work. And then it was even after that that I got several more phone calls from ex-coworkers and other jobs that were finally getting back to me after, after some months. So much so that there were so many options and doors that had opened up for me that I had to pray, okay, God, where do you want me to go? Which door? So when we have that doubt, know that Jesus, he's there to give us truth. He's there to give us faith. That he is the stone, the rock that we can rest both of our feet on. Knowing that as trials come, as the storms come, we don't have to be shaken. We could trust in his plan for us. In verse 18, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So we see the news of God's people here spreading. We're going to stop right here for this morning. But as uh, we've gone through these accounts in, in Scripture of what the Holy Spirit was leading Peter, where the Holy Spirit was leading Saul to bring unity amongst all believers, whoever believed, that we were no longer to be divided by race or by creed, but that the gospel was for whosoever believed. That the Holy Spirit is not limited. We love this. And then we see in this account of Peter there in prison that God can do miracles in our life. That when God has a mission, has a task for us, there is nothing that is going to get in God's way to stop that task. When we're called of the Lord to a task, we become invincible. And there's nothing that can stop us at that point. Now our task is to try to see what he's calling us to. And it's a journey. It's an adventure. And we don't know when our day is coming up. If the Lord would call us as he did Brother James. And then after we pray and we believe that we will hear those faithful words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. This is the hope that we have. And we could share this hope with people. I pray that you guys would share the love of Christ with your coworkers, with your, your friends, your family members this week. That you use the name of Jesus. You'd bring him up in conversation. Let's all stand.
when you ask God to open those doors for you, he will. Just be ready to walk through them. Don't say, not so, Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. May you go before us this morning, Father. Baptize us by your Holy Spirit. Use our lives. We love you, Father. We praise you. We thank you. Help us not to doubt, but to go forward, Lord. May we be, Lord God, just loving to all our enemies, our friends. May we be a light. We pray for our nation. Pray for your church during this season. May we stand for righteousness, for truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God, let your glory go on and on. Impossible things in your name, they shall be done. Unstoppable God, let your glory go on and on. Impossible things in your name, they shall be done. shall be impossible your kingdom reigns unstoppable we'll shout your praise forevermore jesus our god unstoppable nothing shall be impossible your kingdom reigns unstoppable we'll shout your praise forevermore jesus our god unstoppable Unstoppable God, let your glory go on and on. Impossible things in your name, they shall be done. Oh, unstoppable God, let your glory go on and on. Impossible things in your name, they shall be done. this week. We'll see you on Wednesday night. In Jesus' name.